Thanks so much, Sam, for reading that passage for us. Uh, my name is Pete. Let me add my welcome to Aileen's if you're visiting us this morning. Uh, let's pray as we come to Habakkuk again. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, there are some parts of your word that are easy for us to hear and some parts that are harder, and this is one of the harder ones. It's a sobering passage, Lord, but we thank you that all scripture, the whole Bible is God-breathed, is useful to us for teaching us and training us. And so, Lord, we want to pray that, um, that this morning, again, you would speak to us, help us to hear your word and take it to heart. And in this message of judgment, help us to see the glory and salvation of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We are people who long for justice. People who long for justice. Uh, You might have seen this picture. It won an award a picture coming out of Ukraine of a maternity and children's hospital that had been bombed. You see a picture like that and you want to see justice done. Or maybe in the last week or so you've um, read that story about the video uh, of women in Manipur in India who were paraded naked down the street by a violent mob. You hear about that and you want to see justice done. In our own city, we we know that we're passionate about justice. A whole city, red and blue, united together to seek justice for the 96, now 97 victims of the Hillsborough disaster. It's one of those deep, instinctive human cries, isn't it? How long will they get away with it? Why is they not held to account? We want to see evil punished, wrongdoing accounted for, order restored, justice done. And Habakkuk too has been crying out for justice. You remember Habakkuk's on a journey from why to worship. And back in chapter one, we heard Habakkuk's complaint to God as he takes on his own lips the very same questions that we ask God. How long, O Lord, must I call for help but you don't listen or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife, conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed, Habakkuk says. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk's society under the reign of the wicked King Jehoiakim, it's rife with injustice and violence. Justice is nowhere to be found. The wicked oppress the righteous and they get away with it. And so Habakkuk cries out to God in chapter one, please will you do something? 
And we saw God's reply in verse six. I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonian army to bring judgment on Judah and its people. But if you remember, we saw that's not quite the justice that Habakkuk had in mind. Using a nation even more violent, even more brutal than Judah makes the problems worse, not better. And so Habakkuk goes back to God with even more questions. Speaking about Babylon, he asks them, sorry Dave, can you clip me on a couple? Yeah, there we go, it's working again. Um, Speaking of Babylon, he asks God, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? How long is this going to go on for, he asks in verse 17. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? In other words, what about judgment on Babylon for their sin? And then last Sunday, we went with Habakkuk high up onto the city ramparts to wait for God's reply a reply in which Habakkuk is given a revelation a vision of the end the end of human history when Jesus Christ will come in glory to judge the living and the dead and make all things new but Habakkuk and everyone else who hears it including us we're told to wait for it to live by faith in God's promise. So Habakkuk's on a journey from why to worship. We've seen why, what, wait. And this morning we're going to look at this uh, revelation of the end in a bit more detail. And the message is very simple. If the key word in chapter one is why, repeated four times, it's pretty obvious to spot what the key word is in chapter two, repeated five times. Woe. Woe because God's judgment is certainly coming. God's judgment is certainly coming. Habakkuk's final question to God at the end of chapter one is is to ask God, well, well, what about Babylon? Once they have executed judgment on Judah, well, what then? Will they ever face justice for their violence and destruction and wrongdoing? And God's answer in chapter two is yes. They will. Violence will not ultimately prevail. Wrongdoing, all of it will be called to account. Justice will be done and Babylon will be paid back for what they have done. But this is not just about Babylon. In the Bible, Babylon becomes synonymous and symbolic for all humanity that stands in proud opposition to God. As we saw last week, this vision, this revelation, it looks forward to the end, the end of all things, the final judgment. And it's as if Habakkuk looks at the final judgment, but he looks through the lens of the fall of Babylon. And so we get this series of five Woes, But I want you to notice in verse 6, who is saying it? 
So in, in verse five, Babylon gathers to himself all nations and takes captives all the people. But in verse six, it's as though the tables are turned. Because now they say, will not all of them, that's the captive people, taunt him, that's Babylon, with ridicule and scorn. These five woes, they are not just the pronouncements of God's judgment, though they are that. They're God's judgment, but taken on the lips of the captive nations. And it's as though they're singing a a taunt song, a taunt song like you'd hear football fans sing in the terraces. This is like the the fans of the football team who are down 1-0 at halftime, but they taunt the opposition manager. Because the opposition manager knows not even a winner is enough to save his job. And so the opposition fans, they're losing 1-0, but they sing to him from the stands. You're getting sacked in the morning. Sacked in the morning. That's what this song is like. These captive nations are singing to Babylon, taunting them. You might be on top now, but not forever. You're going to get paid back. Justice is coming. And the first woe in verses six to eight, it's a woe against selfish ambition. The Babylonians were well known for exacting heavy tribute from the nations that they had invaded and subjugated. They made themselves wealthy by extortion. They stole effectively from the nations under their power. Babylon never just invaded somewhere. They plundered and pillaged the whole land. They wreaked havoc and destruction. And God pictures Babylon like a debtor, borrowing more and more and more from the nations they've invaded. And God's promise is that one day the creditors will rise up. The bailiffs will come. And they will take back what's theirs. The predator will become the prey. The plunderers will be plundered. The second woe in verses 9 to 11, it's a woe against false security. Just like us, the Babylonians did everything they could to make themselves feel safe and secure. So we trust in our savings accounts or the pension pot to keep us safe from harm. Babylon trusted in their big city walls and natural defenses to protect them from disaster and invasion. The king, the palace that King Nebuchadnezzar had built for himself and his descendants was, he thought, impenetrable. No one could ever attack him there. But it wasn't. One night... King Belshazzar had a feast and he was drinking wine from the goblet that his late father Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. And as we read in Daniel 5, it was that night that Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. His palace sacked in the morning. The Babylonians who built themselves a big city A grand palace. But it was built by unjust gain, wealth and resources stolen from the nations they had captured. And they thought they were safe and secure. Like a bird builds a nest high up in the trees, far away from predators on the ground. But nowhere is high enough to escape the reach of God's justice. 
And God's promise is that one day, those who have plotted the ruin of others will be ruined. Those who have built their house through unjust gain will come to ruin and shame. And as their house crashes down on their heads, it will be as if the very walls and beams of their house cries out, celebrating the judgment of God. The third woe in verses 12 to 14, it's a woe against ruthless power. Babylon was an impressive city. It contained some of the wonders of the ancient world. All the tourists, they would have been happily selfieing in front of all the grand places of Babylon, very impressed. But their impressive city, it was only made possible through violence, brutality, bloodshed, and slave labor. But the Lord has determined that all of that labor, all of that work, all of that toil, is just going to go up in smoke. It's just fuel for the fire of God's judgment. All the magnificent buildings, all the spectacular sites, all the impressive infrastructure, it will all come to nothing, reduced to rubble and ashes. That's all Babylon is now. Along with all the other empires of the world that have come and gone, nothing left except ruins and half-remembered names. Babylon wanted to fill the world with its own glory. But the destiny of the world is not to be filled with the glory of Babylon or any other human name or empire, but with the glory of God. And it's as if God will himself personally dismantle and destroy every blood-built monument to human glory and burn it. All of our proud, vain attempts to make a name for ourselves is futile. Like building a sandcastle by the sea when the tide is coming in. It will all be washed away, replaced with the knowledge of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. The fourth woe in verses 15 to 17, it's a woe against shameless exploitation. The Babylonians, they loved to expose their enemies to shame and humiliation. They would march their captives back to Babylon as slaves, degraded and naked, chained together with fish hooks in their faces. For the Babylonians, human beings were just objects to be used and abused, manipulated and exploited. And it's not just people. In verse 17, God points out their ecological and agricultural exploitation, the destruction of land and animals and cities as well as people. And God sees it all. He's concerned about all that happens in his world and to his world. And God's promise is that one day he will pour out his righteous wrath. Those who have shamed and exploited others will have their boasting and glory turned to shame and disgrace. The violence that they've done to others will come back on them like a tidal wave overwhelming them. What goes around 
comes around. And so just as Babylon was used to make other nations drink the wine of God's wrath, making them drunk with judgment, the cup will come to them too. And Babylon will drink the cup of God's wrath. The fifth and final woe in verses 18 and 19, it's a woe against foolish idolatry. See, the Babylonians were very religious. They were worshippers, as we all are. But they worshipped created things, even things that they had made with their own hands. But these idols, these false gods, they can't hear, they can't speak, and they can't save. They are breathless, and so they are useless. And when judgment comes, they are powerless to save. But, verse 20, God is in his temple, enthroned in heaven, and he is in control, ruling over the whole world. And God's promise is that one day, judgment will come upon all of those who trust in these false gods, and everyone will be silent before the one true living God who is enthroned in heaven. One day, there will be right and fair judgment, a great reversal, woe, when the plunderer will be plundered, when those who plot ruin will be ruined, when those who build with blood will be burned, when those who shame others will be shamed, when those who worship silent idols will be silent before God. God's judgment is a sobering thing, isn't it? It's not easy to listen to wave after wave, woe after woe. But I want you to know God's judgment is a really, really good thing. I mean, imagine a world where there is no judgment at the end. Imagine that for a moment. I mean, even in the cases where people are caught and tried and sentenced for the crimes that they've committed, human justice, it always falls short, doesn't it? Always feels kind of hollow. A guy in Liverpool shoots and kills a nine-year-old girl and he goes to prison, probably not even for his whole life. But that girl has lost her life forever. The family have got to live with that forever. How is human justice ever going to get there it always falls short we can never really right the wrongs that have been done and what about all of those cases where no culprit is ever found where evildoers just get away with it but God's judgment means they won't it means that justice will be done We have to wait. But his promise is sure judgment will come. God will not tolerate evil forever. It's a really good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing because that sense of anger you feel when someone has been wronged or suffered injustice, God shares that. In fact, because he is the Holy One, he is even more concerned about it than you are. And he sees 
everything. Every abusive action, every angry outburst, every selfish deed, even what is done in secret will be exposed. Even what is, what is done in the dark will be brought into the light of God's judgment. Jesus Christ will come and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And that wickedness will be punished in perfect proportion to what it deserves. Plunder is plundered. Wrongs will be put right. And when he does, the whole world will be silent. There'll be nothing left to say. Like when the judge enters the courtroom to deliver the verdict, everyone stands and then they sit in silence to await the sentence. No more excuses, no more defenses, no more attempts at self-justifying or blame shifting. God will judge and he will do what is right and just and fair and good. And on that day, there will be no more complaints to God. No more laments. No more crying out, how long? Why? Justice will be done. It's good news. Good news for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world. Good news for every victim of injustice and wrongdoing. Good news for the whole creation. In Psalm 96, as Alien read at the start, creation, the whole world rejoices. The sea, the land rejoices because Jesus comes to judge. But here's the thing. This is not just about Babylon. And it's not just about any of those other people out there. That's always our danger with a passage like this. We hear it and our minds immediately turn to all those bad people out there who are going to get their comeuppance. If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But we can't do that because the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. This is about us. You, me. Remember that the source of all of this back in verses four and five of chapter two is pride in the human heart. And the first symptom of proud opposition to God is always the same. The symptom is a, an emptiness that needs to be filled, but that nothing can satisfy that was what Babylon were like. They had a deep emptiness that could not be filled. That's why they were as greedy as the grave and like death, never satisfied. 
doesn't matter how many people they conquer, how many people they take captive, they always need more. An emptiness that needs to be filled, but that cannot be satisfied. Babylon's particular solution to feeding that emptiness was imperialistic conquest, gathering nations to themselves. It was a way of trying to fill their emptiness with a glory that they needed. Your solution might be different to theirs. I hope it is. I hope you're not going to try and do some kind of imperialistic conquesting. The tree might be different, but the seed is the same. See, all of us, all of us know something of what that emptiness in our souls feels like. All of us know what it means to move restlessly from one thing to the next, just looking for something that will satisfy us. Some glory that will fill up the emptiness we feel inside. If you're willing to be honest with yourself for just a moment, isn't that why you do so much of what you do? Serving, buying, Working, possessing, making money, preaching. Because we want to feel significant. We need something to fill the emptiness. We need honor and glory because we're desperately searching for something that will fill us up. And like the Babylonians, we look to all kinds of created things to do that for us. Not wood and stone. We don't worship stuff like this anymore. Most of us don't anyway in the UK. But we still find all kinds of created things to worship. All kinds of idols to serve. We worship our savings if we think it'll bring us security, we'll worship our football team or our children if we think they'll bring us the success we crave. We'll worship sex if we think it'll bring us pleasure and relief. They're good gifts. Sex and football and children and savings, but they are terrible gods. And when we're enslaved to those gods, all of us, are tempted to use people rather than serve people if we think it'll get us what we're searching for. Do you see the tree is different to Babylon? We're not going around conquering nations, but the seed is the same. We refuse to let God be God. We try instead to be the creator of our own lives, the master of our own destinies, and it leaves us restless, anxious, and empty, and liable to face God's just judgment. Because that pride, deeply rooted in every human heart, it is the source of all the evil in the world. And so this is not just a problem for those bad people out there. This is our problem. 
the first step to becoming a Christian is acknowledging that and owning that. I'm part of the problem. Not blaming those people out there. I'm taking responsibility for my own sin. Owning it. The problem is me. Because those same underlying attitudes, they pervade all of our hearts. The same seed of sin in the heart of every Babylonian is in the heart of every single one of us. The sobering thing about this passage then is that God will meet my sin with the judgment I deserve. He will meet your sin with the judgment you deserve. See, in this passage, no one's left out. Judah faces judgment, Babylon faces judgment, the whole world faces God's judgment. There is a cup of wrath from which everyone must drink, unless, unless someone else drinks it for you. Often in the Old Testament, God's righteous wrath stored up for the day of judgment is pictured as a cup from which we all must drink as it is in verse 16 you can see it there that's the picture that's being used but do you remember the night before Jesus died on the cross what did he pray Abba Father everything is possible for you Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. But it was not taken away from Jesus. There was no other way for the cup to be taken away from us. See, we deserve shame for proudly living for our own glory but on the cross Jesus took on himself the shame and disgrace that we deserve on the cross Jesus died humiliated his nakedness exposed as he bore the judgment of God On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you. He drank the judgment we deserved so that when the cup comes round to me, it's empty. Nothing left. Jesus drank the cup of woe so that you will never hear God's woe to you. He took our shame and disgrace And he gives us his honor and glory. God's judgment is certainly coming. But more than that, better than that. God's glory is certainly coming. Verse 14, God's glory is certainly coming. See, God's plan, it doesn't end with judgment. His end is much bigger and it is much better. Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The glory of God 
is the public display of his beauty. The glory of God is the public display of his beauty. It is his goodness felt, his majesty made known, his magnificence magnified for everyone to see, his radiant righteousness received, his power proclaimed. It is us enjoying God's beauty and grace forever and ever. One day, this world will not be filled with human violence, bloodshed, and injustice of human beings seeking their own honor. It will be filled with the glory of God. But the only way for a perfect world filled with the glory of God is for all of the evil to be removed. And so judgment is a means to that end, that glorious end. And when all human wickedness has been wiped away, when human sin no longer stains God's world, when the cities of bloodshed have been banished from the earth, the heavenly city will come. All things will be made new by Jesus. And the glory of God will fill the whole world. That's where this is all going. And if you know where it's going, you can face whatever darkness comes in the meantime. If you know where it's going, you can live by faith in a world filled with human pride. And it means that you can live now no longer seeking that glory for yourself, no longer restlessly striving to fill the emptiness. Because Jesus takes our shame and disgrace and he gives us his glory and honor. A glory and honor that takes away our insecurities that means we can admit when we're wrong. Because our shame and disgrace has been taken by Jesus. And we know that one day we will share in his glory. We will be glorified with him. That's the glory you were made for. The only glory that can satisfy you, the only glory that can fill the emptiness inside, the only glory that will last. And one day, the whole world will be filled with his glory like the waters cover the sea. As we close, just think about that picture for a second. To what extent do the waters cover the sea? Doesn't actually even make that much sense, does it? The waters are the sea. The waters cover the sea completely, totally, fully. There could not be any more coverage of sea by water. And that's what this world will be like one day. Every inch of creation soaked in glory, filled to the brim with the glory of God. The glory of God which is not self-seeking. The glory of God which is displayed in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And we will bask and bathe in his glory forever. In wonder and worship and joy. Right now, you have to wait. The righteous will live by faith, remember? But it will be worth the wait.
glory will be our enduring eternal reality. The world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's be silent before the Lord for a moment. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Father, we praise you that there is a day of justice coming. We praise you that that day every wrong will be put right. We praise you that on that day we'll be able to be silent. No more crying out why or how long. because you will do what is right and just and fair and good. And we praise you that even more than that, even better than that, out of the other side of the day of judgment, your glory will fill this whole world. Total coverage of glory. And thank you that you've invited us to share in it. And we pray as we fix our eyes on that day, you would help us to live by faith, bearing with all the darkness of this world, all the injustice of this world, knowing that the day will come and it will certainly not delay. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing a song now that helps us to reflect on the cross of Jesus where he drunk the cup for us, pouring contempt on all of our pride. Let's stand and sing together.